episode 2.8, the 70s were disco, but the 80s are washed up rockers. Last episode, we examined how Ceausescu had consolidated power in the 70s, and then began to mold Romania into his own vision of a communist paradise. With his support for the Czech Revolution of 1968, Ceausescu started making friends the world over, not just in Romania's now traditional allies amongst communist Eastern Europe. These new friendships brought diplomatic success, and with it economic opportunity. But this opportunity came at a price. Loans from the world's largest banks. This episode, we're going to look at how economic mismanagement in the 1970s and early 1980s led to economic depression and stagnation that would eventually fatally cripple Ceausescu. Let's imagine it's the beginning of the 1980s in Romania. Ceausescu was at the height of his power. Romania's economy had been growing for years on the back of Western loans, mass industrialization, and a healthy amount of espionage. Romania's future was looking bright, or at least it should have been looking bright. But just under the surface was the undercurrent of economic mismanagement. A fatally basic misunderstanding of what these loans meant would cripple the country and lead to poverty heretofore unseen in Romania, and ultimately, the end of Ceausescu. The oil crisis sparked by the Islamic Revolution in Iran should have been a boon to Romania's small but respectable oil industry. But, despite having deals with Western oil companies to help Ceausescu extract Romanian crude, Romania couldn't keep up with demand. So, the country could not fully capitalize on this golden opportunity. Plus, the loans Ceausescu had taken out in the 1970s? Yeah, they were more than $10 billion worth, which, for a country of Romania's size, was like Atlas with its proverbial boulder. Except that instead of getting to the top of the mountain to drop the boulder, the mountain would just keep getting bigger. This debt load was too much for Romania's state-run economy to handle. By 1982, the amount had grown to $13 billion. Romania was looking down the barrel at some harsh economic realities. The bankers who loaned Romania all that money wanted to get that money back with interest. But Romania, despite the mass industrialization of the past 25 years, couldn't make enough money to pay them off. The situation was untenable, and the comrade knew it. He couldn't tolerate this boulder any more than Atlas could, and he wanted to be free of the limitations which all this debt imposed on the country. Showing some kind of bravado, in 1981 Ceausescu came up with a plan. Romania would pay back the loans, all of them, as quickly as possible. Ceausescu implemented an economic austerity policy to put the country on the road to being debt free. He did this by slashing imports across the board and by increasing exports. Buy less, sell more seems like a good mantra to live by. But once again, it was handled horribly. For example, Romania was a net importer of food, but those imports were now cut. To make up for the shortfalls, Ceausescu had his health ministry come up with a nationwide diet plan which cut the average person's diet by up to 15% or several hundred calories per day. Romanian citizens were having to tighten their belts to pay off the country's loans. Of course, Ceausescu himself would never feel the pains of hunger, 
He could still import his favorite Moldovan yellow wine to have at his leisure. And the finest filet mignon or foie gras was of course available to him at any time. Ceausescu ordered massive increases in production of goods for export. Anything and everything that could be sold for profit was. Even the production of consumer goods would be increased, but not for the Romanian people. Romanians would increase their production of consumer goods for Russians, Czechs, Bulgarians, and Yugoslavs, and whoever else wanted to buy them, but not for themselves. Everyday essentials would become harder to come by as the 1980s dragged on. So not only were Romanian-made goods hard to come by, but the stuff Romania routinely imported would essentially be a non-starter. That Russian-made refrigerator? Or that East German car? What about those Bulgarian tomatoes? They were all now pretty much impossible to get on the local market. While American kids were enjoying their first Walkman, British kids were picking up guitars, and Japanese kids were getting into motorbikes, these things were nearly impossible for someone to acquire in Nikolai Ceausescu's Romania. Ceausescu continued his austerity policy by ordering the gradual elimination of price controls. As a consequence, the price of oil, natural gas, and gasoline all jumped significantly by as much as 150%. Then, restrictions on energy use were imposed. Romanian cities, large and small, relied on large heating plants to pump hot water throughout the cities. With less oil, these plants had to limit their hours. The restrictions re increased throughout the decade and got so bad that in some places, hot water was around only one day a week. Much of Romania is mountainous, and winters in the Balkans can be much harsher than winters at the same latitudes in Western Europe. So, providing hot water one day a week in the middle of a freezing winter was not a way to endure yourself to the people. But electricity cuts and gas cuts didn't just affect people at home or at work. Hospitals were also subject to cuts, which, as you can imagine, leads to nothing good at all. Several instances are recorded of people dying in their hospital beds because the power to their life-saving equipment suddenly shut off. Even babies in neonatal wards and hospitals died due to power rationing. If you were fortunate enough to have a car, you are now limited to 30 liters of gasoline a month. That's about one tank of gas for the average car. Plus, driving bans were periodically implemented to save gasoline. All that mechanized farming got hit by the gasoline rationing, and the Communist Party-controlled media routinely encouraged farmers to find non-mechanized ways to farm and transport their goods. Also, to make up for labor shortages in the agricultural sector, because, you know, that a large portion of the farmers were now factory workers, high school and university students were conscripted during the summers to work the collective farms. This wasn't a uniquely Romanian phenomenon, though, as it was a long-standing practice in the Soviet Union. But with rationing came increased prices on just about everything, even with price controls still in place. Prices were deliberately raised on certain items, sometimes by up to 40%. But these prices fueled an underground economy. People relied on their connections just to make ends meet. Payment in kind was often used. When someone might take the goods produced at their factory to pay for goods that should have been paid 
in cash on store shelves. As we talked about before, Ceausescu continued to industrialize Romania to bring about the new way of living instead of the backward ways. Large numbers of peasant farmers were turned into factory workers and all kinds of industries. At the same time, the agricultural sector employed up to 30% of Romania's labor force. Despite this, it suffered from labor shortages. Ceausescu continued to mechanize Romanian farming, which should have freed up personnel for more factories, but mechanized farms require fewer farmers per hectare and can plant and manage more crops on larger plot of lands. In reality, though, you're stripping generations of farming knowledge from your base and moving those personnel to other professions. The Ceausescu regime, in this case, took most of these former farmers and turned them into factory and construction workers in the 1960s and 70s. But in the 80s, all the shortages that we just talked about meant that there was no gas or oil for all the new mechanized farming equipment. All the people who knew what to do without mechanized farming equipment had been taken out of the agricultural labor market to be put in factories, which made industrial farming so much less effective. And in the factory sector, factories were being built at a breakneck pace all over the country, but with little thought given to what the country actually needed. Steel mills, oil rigs, chemical factories, and construction-related industries dominated. On top of that, almost 90% of these factories were huge in size, over a thousand workers apiece. Whole towns might be employed at just one factory. And just to emphasize how mismanaged the economy was, these factories sometimes produced goods that were unsellable both on the local economy and on the export market. Piles and piles of product would then just sit around collecting dust because it couldn't be used or sold. Other industries couldn't even produce the quantities they were expected to, meaning that follow-on industries couldn't reach their own goals. This economic imbalance was cutting down the country's economic output and potential. But as the 80s moved on, conditions in Romania continued to worsen. In 1984, a new diet plan reduced the calorie intake even further. Basic foods like milk, flour, and cooking oil were now getting harder and harder to find, just like the nicer stuff was just a couple of years ago. Lines for food became an everyday occurrence. And there's a weird cultural phenomenon started to occur. Grandparents started standing in food lines while their parents were at work, just so kids could eat. And by standing in line, I don't mean a nice half hour. I mean sometimes you can stand in line all day just for a loaf of bread, or a stick of butter, and that's if you were lucky enough to get whatever the store had by the time you got inside. Even crazier, sometimes people just got in whatever line they saw, hoping that whatever they were able to procure at the end of the line could be traded for something they needed. For example, Yuan gets in line for what he thinks is bread, but is actually a carton of eggs. Well, he can't use a carton of eggs, so he trades half a carton for a kilo of flour and some butter. I mean, like, this was an everyday occurrence in Ceausescu's Romania during the 1980s. In October of 1982, the Central Committee approved a plan that would allow <coughs> compel Romanian workers to invest their earnings in state-owned companies they worked for. It was billed as something similar to buying shares in your company. You buy in, and you get a share of the profits. Except, 
there were never any profits because, you know, the economy was quickly going down the tube and because communism isn't really big on actually giving people money. A couple months later, and production quarters were imposed. Companies were given periodic goals to achieve, which they could barely ever achieve on paper under ideal conditions and could never actually hit in practice. Originally, 24% of the shares for workers were held back in case they didn't reach their quotas, and later that number increased to 27%. So what happened when companies didn't meet their impossible numbers each month? The management was fired for incompetence. Nah, just kidding. It was the everyday workers, the ones who worked all day and then stood in breadlines all night, who took the brunt of the punishment. Their pay would be cut by more than a quarter to make up for not meeting their quotas. And remember, everything is getting more expensive. At the same time, Romania actually started building the nuclear power plant at Chernovoda. Nuclear power plants are hugely expensive to make, so in an economy where every cent counted, Ceausescu was spending when he should have been saving, or at least spending on keeping the people fed. Unfortunately, the nuclear power plant at Chernovoda wouldn't start producing electricity until the 1990s, well after the fall of the Ceausescu regime. In addition to the Chernovoda project, Ceausescu wanted to build his legacy in literal stone. He ordered the construction of what would become the second largest government building in the history of the world after the Pentagon, the House of the Republic. It was supposed to be the centerpiece of the government and was to be located in central Bucharest. In order to house such a massive building, entire neighborhoods had to be demolished. Monasteries, hospitals, and thousands of homes were bulldozed to make room for the gargantuan construction. 40,000 people lost their homes to this monstrosity, which required hundreds of architects and thousands of laborers to build. Even worse, Ceausescu's personal interest in the project led to frequent changes in the design. He had no architectural training whatsoever, but that didn't stop him from constantly changing how things were supposed to look. What I mean by that is that the comrade would drop by on the construction site and start ordering changes on the spot. Rooms, halls, or whole wings would be finished or almost finished, only to be torn down and reconstructed based on the comrades' comments during visits on random days. The cost was enormous, running over a billion dollars by the time it was finished in the mid-90s. All of this while every other sector of the economy suffered under austerity policies. Despite all the hardships, the austerity measures were working though at least to pay off Romania's debts. By late in 1989, Ceausescu had managed to pay off 100% of Romania's foreign debt. This is a feat that's never again been repeated in history, where a heavily indebted nation has paid off all of its loans. But the human cost was enormous. Romanians were starving, cold, and miserable. They had suffered through the harshest economic lockdown in their country's history, and even though Romania was out of debt, it didn't have a clear or easy way to emerge from austerity. There was no light at the end of the tunnel. By 1989, when Romania was making its final debt payments, the economy was in shambles. People were starving, and basic public needs went largely unmet. 
Ceausescu's popularity officially never waned. Put on the streets, people were angry. In November of that year, the Berlin Wall came down, leading to a domino effect and the collapse of communism in Eastern Europe. Romania's domino started its fall on the 16th of December. That day, Romanian security forces tried to evict an ethnically Hungarian pastor, Laszlo Tokas, from his flat in the western city of Timisoara. Tokas had spoken out against the regime and was removed from his position, leading to the security tate trying to evict him. Tokas's parishioners gathered around the building and started protesting. Soon, passersby spontaneously joined in, demanding his release. When the local mayor refused to provide proof that he would release the pastor, the protest turned violent. The Securitate brought in water cannons and tear gas to break up the crowd. The next day, the protesters came back and started breaking into government buildings, throwing out and torching all kinds of documentation and Communist Party symbols. Realizing that the local Securitate couldn't handle a riot of this size, the army was called in. Shooting broke out, and cars all over the city were torched. On the 18th of December, Ceausescu went on an official visit to Iran and left the handling of the situation to Elena and to local officials. But the crowd wouldn't be slayed, and the Romanians and ethnic Hungarians came out together in force, chanting anti-communist songs and getting into street fights with the army. By the 20th, Ceausescu was back in Bucharest, and the regime ordered factory workers from the Altenia region to counter-protest. However, they quickly joined their brethren in fighting against the regime. While the Romanian media was silent on the chaos in Timisoara, most Romanians found out via word of mouth or through Radio Free Europe and the Voice of America. On the 21st of December, the party planned a mass uh, meeting in Bucharest in support of the leader. Ceausescu was scheduled to speak that morning to approximately 100,000 people at the same square where he gave his speech condemning the invasion of Czechoslovakia back in 1968. The party was trying to make it look like Ceausescu was still immensely popular, providing banners in support of him to the crowd, and threatening to fire anyone who spoke out against him. The speech was broadcast nationwide, and he called the events in Timisoara a foreign provocation. But within just a couple of minutes, the crowd started booing and jeering. When Ceausescu backpedaled and offered to increase the salaries by 10 to 15 percent, the crowd smelled blood in the water. Cries of Team Mi Shwara broke out, and soon the gathering turned into a protest. Ceausescu himself was stunned. Never in his life had people defied him like this. But he and his officials panicked, and he ducked back into the building. He then called in the army to handle the rabble. It didn't take long, and the army started opening fire. Shooting was going on until late into the night, but Ceausescu planned another rally for the next day when he would denounce the day's activities as acts of terrorism or hooliganism. That is, until Elena heard that factory workers from all over the city were planning to stage another protest. By 9.30 on the 22nd, city squares in Bucharest were teeming with protesters. At 10, Martial law was declared, but basically it didn't amount to anything, as the streets were fully out of control. Ceausescu once again stepped out onto the balcony to address the crowds, and was immediately shouted down. 
At around the same time, Ceausescu's Minister of Defense was found dead, probably by suicide. Ceausescu appointed a new Minister of Defense, whose first act defied Ceausescu's orders and sent the troops back to their barracks. Then, the protesters broke in the building, which was the Communist Party headquarters. Nikolai Elena, along with her bodyguards, ran up to the roof and boarded a helicopter to escape. Little did they know that the protesters were just meters away. The helicopter took the couple away and landed at one of Ceausescu's country palaces, and then took off again. The helicopter landed in a field near the city of Titu. There, Ceausescu's bodyguard flagged down a car to drive him and Elena to somewhere safe. The driver convinced him that they could hide in an agricultural institute on the edge of town, but then immediately squealed on them and they were arrested there after a couple of hours. Nikolai and Elena spent a couple of days locked up in the local military garrison before being transferred to the city of Targovishte on Christmas Eve. In the meantime, Bucharest was basically a city at war. Factions of the military sided with the protesters, while other factions remained loyal to Ceausescu. Fighting was taking place in the streets between pro- and anti-Ceausescu forces. Shortly after the Ceausescus were arrested, though, fighting died down. A group of second-tier Communist Party officials took control of the government, calling themselves the National Salvation Front. On Christmas Day, the couple were transported to a makeshift courtroom for a military trial tribunal, which was filmed. During the approximately hour-long trial, Nikolai and Elena denounced it as a kangaroo court, which kind of was, and claimed they had done everything for Romania and the Romanian people. But their denunciation sent nothing for them, and they were sentenced to death, with the sentence to be carried out immediately. The paratroopers guarding them bound their hands with twine, which Eleni in particular took great offense to. The paratroopers dragged them outside, lined them up against the wall, and opened fully automatic fire on them. A television news anchor and his cameraman got to the scene as the firing was ending and filmed what they could. Nikolai and Elena Ceausescu were filmed for the last time as bloody corpses on the ground on Christmas Day, 1989. They had ruled Romania for almost 25 years. It's a testament to how much they were hated by the end that they were the only communist leaders killed during the fall of communism in Europe. From Berlin to Moscow and Warsaw to Tirana, all the former leaders of the communist nations lost their jobs but only Nikolai and Elena lost their lives. Large-scale fighting in the streets died down on Christmas Day, although random acts of violence occurred until around December 27th. All told, about 220 people died in the protests in Timisoara and Bucharest, while approximately 1,000 were killed in the street fighting after the 21st of December riot. This included some soldiers who, like I said, had sometimes deliberately and sometimes inadvertently fought other army units during the four days of chaos. After the execution of the Ceausescus, the National Salvation Front became the interim government until elections could be held. They formed a political party which would win those elections, the first free elections in Romania in more than 50 years. 
Romania has since stayed on the path to a market economy and a democratic government. By 1997, the government had largely privatized most industry and farming. In the same year, Ceausescu's gargantuan palace in central Bucharest, now called the Palace of the Parliament, was finished. It currently houses both chambers of par Romania's parliament, some government offices, and two museums. But the transition to democracy and a market economy have not been easy for the country. Although Romania joined the European Union in 2007, it remains one of the bloc's poorest member states. Corruption is prevalent at all levels, and poor living standards mean that Romanians have immigrated away from the country in droves. The Jewish community that was left after Ceausescu largely immigrated to Israel, and the German community largely fled to the newly reforged Germany. Romanians can be found in every country of Europe and all over the US and Canada and Australia. But the future is looking good for Romania. The economy is growing and the country is fully integrated into EU structures and it's one of the fastest growing economies in Europe. The Dacia car company, which was started during the Ceausescu years, is still operating and producing cars mostly for the European market. And Romania is a leader in software development in IT. One of my favorite game series, the Assassin's Creed games, were partially developed in Romania. Next time, we'll take a trip all the way to Southeast Asia to talk about one of the 20th century's worst people, a man who's universally despised for the deplorable murder of up to a third of his own countrymen. Join me soon for the life and times of Cambodian strongman, Pol Pot.